Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion, and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage. Welcome to part two with Brandon Monroe of Bannerman Resources. Brandon, welcome back. Thank you, Andrew. Always great to be revisiting some interesting topics here. So before we were talking about uh, some various funds, uh, physical funds and also equity funds that have uh, showed up over the last couple of years into the sector. Um, do some of those funds, uh, are they invested with Bannerman at this point? Can you share a little bit of details on that? Uh, well, fortunately I can. I mean, obviously, normally I'd be very protective of the discretion and privacy of our investors, um, but there are of the small universe of specialist uranium investors, uh, a large proportion of those are in the public domain as being on Bannerman's register. So those that are, I'm, I'm obviously delighted uh, that their due diligence has passed the appropriate test, not that I would expect anything different, but happy to um, both for their profile and um, for the reassurance that it gives other Bannerman shareholders talk about them. And um, so the first one's Geiger Counter Fund, which is listed on the, listed in London. Um, they've been a shareholder of Bannerman for quite some time. The most significant is Trebeka Investment Partners. Uh, as you might know, they're a Sydney-based fund that has launched a, a specialised uranium equities investment vehicle and also through their uh, Natural Resources Fund uh, backed a number of uranium stories. Uh, they've got 9% of Bannerman's register, so they're our largest shareholder at the moment. I'm delighted to have them very supportive, take a long-term view of the sector, offer a, um, a more integrated approach in terms of having a debt fund and loan solutions and so on. So they're a, they're a fantastic partner to have as a larger shareholder. And L2 Capital, run by Marcelo Lopez, also out of Sydney and Brazil. Um, I've been on a podcast with Marcelo and um, you know, great thinker in the sector, but as part of that, he obviously disclosed the fact that L2 Capital uh, have an interest in Bannerman. And the same with Station Cove Partners and Mike Alkin. I'm really pleased to have both Mike and Marcelo significantly involved in Bannerman and um, able to contribute to the dialogue and so on. And also Oklana Asset Management out of Singapore. Um, Bannerman is uh, one of only a few Australian listed companies in their portfolio. Uh, so with all of those, it's five of the eight specialist investment funds who are, who are on Bannerman's register. And I think that says a couple of things. One is um, it's a very useful form of external validation. Um, and for many investors who don't have the time to do their own detailed due diligence, I think you can take a lot from that. But secondly, it's very important because of the uh, thematic that I think will drive this sector over the next 12 to 24 months, um, which is generalist money finding its way into the uranium sector through specialist investors, such as those guys that I've mentioned. And because uh, they're already on Bannerman's register, we're positioned exceptionally well to receive a proportionate benefit as they continue to capitalise and need to deploy that money into what is a very, very small equity sector. Well, I appreciate you sharing that information with us. So moving on, you've got Niger, Namibia, 
and Malawi in Africa as really confirmed uranium destinations. Tell us why Namibia is better. It, so I think it comes down to two things. One is just the nature of the country. And the second is Namibia's quite unique geopolitical positioning within the uranium world. So first of all, the nature of the country. Uh, Africa can be quite a scary concept for a lot of investors, particularly investors who haven't traveled to Africa. And what people need to understand is it's a very diverse continent. Um, it's a little bit like saying America, as in North and South America all grouped together. If you were to do that, the diversity between a Canada and a US uh, and an Ecuador and a Venezuela is obviously enormous. And you see similar dynamics in the continent of Africa, which consists of 50 individual countries that all have their own unique history, unique people, unique cultures and unique challenges. So Namibia is absolutely right at the top of that list. So, okay, it's not quite a Canada or America, but in terms of ease of doing business, stability, political stability, security, safety, access to infrastructure, Namibia with Botswana sit in a realm of their own. Um, and if you don't believe me, go to some of the guidebooks, for example. So Namibia is often described as Africa light or Africa beginners. So for somebody who's considering a trip to Africa as a tourist with a great deal of trepidation, you'd be advised to start in Namibia. And uh, I absolutely love the country. My wife and daughters lived there with me for more than five years. Uh, we had a fabulous experience, very warm hearted people. Um, it's got a low population density, second only to Mongolia, in fact. So many, many of the problems that plague Africa relate to population density and lack of infrastructure and, and social services. And for the most part, they don't exist in Namibia. Uh, it's safe, it's secure. In five and a half years, we never even had a car broken into. I never felt unsafe once. Um, sure, you need to take the normal precautions, but I can say that about a lot of the parts I've visited of Australia and Europe for that matter. Um, politically very stable. So Namibia's uh, been a sovereign nation for coming up to 30 years. Uh, it has a very strong political party in government with, a, with an opposition, so it is a democracy. Uh, but it's not the sort of democracy that Australia's got where we seem to flip-flop in prime ministers about every six to nine months. Um, very stable political setup, and that translates to their regulations and um, the way that they govern. But most importantly, it's got a long and proud history of uranium mining. So the Rossing uranium mine was set up there almost 45 years ago. And so the regulators, the government, and by and large, the people are all highly supportive of uranium and highly grateful to uranium mining for what it's been able to achieve in the development of the country. So Namibia is only really famous for three things on the world stage. It's got an incredible environmental conservation record and I can highly recommend that to anybody. Secondly, it produces the highest quality diamonds in the world. Um, it still has the highest value per carat of any diamond producer. But thirdly, it's on the world stage when it comes to uranium. And chances are, if you've heard of Namibia, it's probably one of those three things. You won't have heard of Namibia for reasons of war, famine, um, 
large-scale health outbreaks uh, and some of the other really tragic things that affect many countries in Africa. So that's the country itself. Absolutely fantastic place. Uh, any investor out there should look at doing a due diligence trip to Namibia and taking a couple of wildlife resorts and a couple of the sites and the landscapes along the way. What's even more fascinating though is its geopolitical positioning. And it's become more interesting because of some of the geopolitical turbulence that we're seeing via the trade war, via Section 232, via some of the responses that we're seeing from China and Russia um, to American actions on this front. And the reason it's so interesting is that Namibia was friends with China and Russia and has become friends with the US and the West. Um, it was friends with Russia and China over many years because they supported Namibia in its aspirations to become independent from South Africa and has become friends with the US and the West in the intervening period following the UN's um, decision that Namibia should be an independent nation and the pressure that the West then put on South Africa to allow that to happen. So it's an interesting situation. It's a little bit like it's got Swiss style neutrality and it's maintained that uh, throughout its UN sponsored history as a sovereign nation. Uh, so if you were to run through the list of the various uh, uranium consuming nations, so starting at the top, uh, the US, um, Namibia has been exporting to the US for most of its 45 year history. Um, then you would work down to uh, say China, so strong links between Namibia and China, strong links between, and, and China owns uranium mines in Namibia and uh, exploration projects. Strong links between Namibia and Russia and uh, Rosatom is exploring in Namibia today, um, so has a presence there. Strong links between Namibia and India. So um, one of Namibia's largest mines, a zinc mine, um, is owned by an Indian company. So they've already got a presence in country and understand it and there's um, good bilateral relations that are built on that. Um, President Modi just recently visited Namibia, uh, which was widely interpreted as a um, reassignment of bilateral interest because of Namibia's uranium potential. Um, you can keep working down the list. South Korea um, has spent uh, quite a lot of time in Namibia. I've met with um, various embassy and commercial officials in Namibia for representing the South Korean nuclear fuel um, industry. Uh, Middle East, uh, there's been sizable investments from the Amanis into the Namibian resources sector. And all of the other utilities, the Namibian uranium sector has contracted with everyone from CNNC uh, through to Vattenfall in Sweden. Now that distinguishes Namibia from other jurisdictions, both in Africa. If you look at Niger, um, Niger is obviously very francophone. It's highly reliant on France as a nation for its security um, and its sovereign independence. Uh, it's a troubled nation, I think it'd be fair to say. Um, when I look at doing due diligence into Niger and I, and I haven't done it, yet largely because I've got a rule that if I wouldn't take my wife to a country, I don't think I should be operating there. And there's other complications as well, like uh, you can't get travel insurance to travel to Niger. Um, many parts of Niger, you need to have some level of personal security. And it's just not fun to do that. And it's, it's not a great look for investors either. 
Um, and Malawi, Malawi's got probably a blend of Namibia and Niger, if you could be so blunt as to put it in the middle. Um, it's high population density. It has a number of challenges, both from a governance point of view and a societal point of view. Um, and it's also infrastructure starved. So when Paladin was operating the Kailakera mine in Malawi, they needed to export that uranium out through the port of Wolfish Bay, which is the Namibian port that uh, Langer Heinrich uses, Rossing uses, and that um, is only 40 kilometres away from Bannerman's Tango project. So then if you look at it, the geopolitics from a broader context, uh, and you run through the list of jurisdictions that could obtain favour throughout the nuclear world, um, let's start with the US. So with Cold War 2.0 underway, uh, I don't see too much investment from Russia in the US. Um, with the trade war underway, I don't see a lot of action from China in the US in the short term unless it's uh, introduced as part of a settlement on the trade war. Um, you then move to Canada. Well, Ottawa's got some very strict uh, rules on foreign entities owning mines. So if uh, China or an India wants to have absolute control over some uranium, they won't be able to achieve that in Canada. The best that they can achieve would be something like we've seen in fission, which is uh, uh, a level of offtake assurance that's cemented in with a large equity position. Um, but that doesn't always present the same funding opportunities as a consolidation or um, joining a large project to an extremely large balance sheet, such as we've seen in um, Namibia with the HUSAB mine. You then look at Australia. So Australia's got foreign investment review board restrictions um, that would be very highly scrutinised in the current geopolitical environment if it's uh, sovereign funding that's looking to acquire a more than 15% stake in a uranium project. So it's difficult in Australia lay it on top of some deep political uncertainties as to whether you're allowed to mine uranium in certain states in Australia. Uh, and then you're left with Kazakhstan, and it's very difficult for Western capital to access Kazakhstan. Uh, the joint ventures that were established in order to get Kazakh mining going that gave access to the likes of Cameco, Uranium One and Areva, uh, it'll be much more difficult to do those sort of joint ventures with Kazatomprom now that they're listed on the London Stock Exchange. So the point of all of that is Namibia sits out there as an absolute island when it comes to geopolitical certainty. It is There is a huge amount of geopolitical angst around the world right now, and Namibia is absolutely unique as a very significant uranium producer that is sitting on the outside of all that as a neutral entity. And that puts a real focus on the very small handful of tradable uranium companies that have got any level of exposure to Namibia, which is really Bannerman with the highly advanced and massive Atango project, DPLO with a promising exploration project and some excellent sector management, and then a couple of others who are trying to make their way, such as Maranica listed on ASX. Very small pool, and once we see the Chinese up their game, I think Namibia is one of the first places they would look, and that's a great opportunity for equities investors. Well, you made it covered a lot of points. 
uh, I would say that certainly the, the point about population density is really key. Uh, if you go to another place in the world, Central America or even South America, and you look at the population density um, of certain countries, you'll find that also in places like Panama, for example, the population is much better off economically uh, compared to many of the neighboring countries. And population density and also the fact that they have a canal here is uh, also a positive, but you can also look to Chile and, and some other countries in South America and, and come up with the same thing. And, and Namibia is no different. And their attachment to mining is, is really a key factor for the economy in Namibia. And we had spoken to, uh, to Haya Don of Osino Resources, um, and he is a Namibian uh, native uh, there. He had some very confirming positive things, much along the lines of, of what you said about the country. Um, and, and he splits his time, you know, more or less, he's, he's also in South Africa. And of course, with the South Africa problems that have, that have ensued there, uh, South Africa has quickly lost its uh, status. And, and so you're really left with uh, Namibia and, and Botswana is really the, the top blue chip uh, jurisdictions, if you will, for Africa. So I think it's I think it's important. And then the the geopolitical comments you made about all the associations and relationships uh, is also very interesting because you pretty much singled out all the uranium jurisdictions with your comments. And the only places you can hope to, which, again, is a speculation, is to look at maybe some other countries like an Argentina or a Peru that might have an opportunity to do something this cycle with uranium projects and export. But that's in a whole different class and, and again, a speculation. So Namibia really, if you don't have Namibia exposure uh, in uranium, uh, you're really doing yourself a disservice in my opinion. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it there, Brandon, unless you have comments. Uh, the one, one thing I'd pick up on there, Andrew, is that uh, we've talked already about how positioning for the next cycle is um, largely about timing and time to market and how that can be a very elastic concept if you're still relying on permitting, for example, and that's the challenge that you highlighted in Canada. But to try and progress a uranium project in a new jurisdiction that has not produced uranium before creates a huge uncertainty there. And it's at several levels. It's not only a societal, environmental, social type uncertainty, you know, how the locals going to react or any international interest groups going to get under their skin and start using them as pawns to push a broader agenda. But it's also at a government regulator level. The government infrastructure required for a single uranium mine is huge. It's uh, for a small uranium mine, it's almost unconscionable to expect a government to create those departments according to the IAEA rules required for that government to responsibly export uranium and regulate it. Um, so for a project to start in a new jurisdiction um, really requires a lot of careful handling by the project proponent. And it also means that you would be looking for a project of scale and you would also be best advised to go to a country that's not too wrapped up in green tape. And all of those factors mean that there is uncertainty and risk associated with whether you can get the project and the government into shape in time to participate when the supply crunch comes. And if, as we've seen in the last boom, missing that cycle uh, timing 
can be really quite destructive of shareholder value. Right. And that brings me into it. Just a, a question that we had from the audience was obviously when uranium prices start to get meaningfully higher, uh, Namibian and, and other African based uh, development and exploration companies to some degree have a competitive advantage in, in advancing their projects much quicker than a place like Australia, Canada and the US. Would you agree with that? Uh, no question. Um, and if we Australia is always an interesting beast here because um, some jurisdictions like Western Australia, they flip from one government to the other on whether uranium mining is encouraged or banned, which makes it really hard to develop a large long-term project as, as the guys over here are finding. Um, but even ignoring that political uncertainty, there's, an, there's a level of social pragmatism that exists in a developing country that you just don't find in a first world nation. And that's because the positive impact that a sizable uranium mine can have on a local population in, a, in an impoverished country is unbelievable. And it's even made greater by the fact that we are mining uranium, that any sensible board knows that they need to over allocate in terms of social progress and over allocate in terms of attitudinal response to the local community. Because um, not themselves up to the attention of the world's anti-nuke interest groups. Uh, so as a CEO operating in Namibia, it's an absolute pleasure because I'm very much passion driven about what I do and to have irrefutable board support for all of the fantastic CSR type initiatives we're having. Uh, what a pleasure to, to think that I actually come to work and do that sort of stuff. Uh, and it is just fantastic. So you can have so much greater proportionate impact and the trade-off with that is you have a more pragmatic pathway to production. Compared to Australia, you know, we're kind of running out of big problems to solve in Australia. And it's a luxury living here. It's an absolute privilege living in Australia. And we're a society that can decide on uranium mining, whether to take it or leave it. And we're under no, it has no economic impact except on a small number of people who might be employed or might be direct recipients. Um, We've got such large natural resources production here anyway that it makes no difference to fiscal outcomes or exchange rate outcomes or any of those things. Like a project like a Tango in Namibia absolutely moves the dial in that economy in that country. So they want us there. They want us there soon. And that's not a dynamic that you experience in first world countries. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So Back to Namibia, do you expect the Chinese to continue ramping up African uranium assets uh, in Namibia and elsewhere? And if so, who do you think might be some of the best targets for their acquisition ambitions? So the first answer is absolutely. China's demand for uranium will be insatiable. And the latest round of trade wars has simply confirmed their existing strategy, which is they can't be a buyer of uranium, they must be an owner of uranium. And the Chinese stockpiling strategies have been quite evident for several years. It was a three-stooled approach, three-legged stool approach. Um, own production, uh, own interests in mines that give them privileged access to offtake and stockpile physical uranium in country. 
Um, they did have a fourth leg to that stool, which was try and boost domestic production, but they've had very little success doing that. So they've had to rely on uh, the uranium elsewhere in the world. Um, some of the numbers for Chinese uranium demand going forward are staggering. Um, depending on what scenario you're working with, by 2040, you could see Chinese uranium demand equaling the entire supply in the sector right now. So their appetite, I believe, is going to be absolutely voracious, and it's got the potential to expand even further if they achieve their export ambitions in terms of rolling out nuclear power plants throughout the One Belt, One Road initiative and elsewhere. So the only way that the Chinese can be sure of A, having the nuclear fuel in their own domestic reactors, and B, maintaining a competitive advantage to be able to offer a build and operate model that competes with the Russians in the export market is to have control over large amounts of uranium. And for the reasons that we've described, they can't do that in Canada. They would have trouble doing that in Australia. Um, there's no volume to speak of in the US. Um, Niger would require a level of bilateral cooperation with France and China's played one, lost one in Niger already, um, quite embarrassingly with a, um, a mine development failure there that cost a lot of face back in Beijing. So all roads lead to Namibia. And we've seen huge determined investment in the HUSAB mine, acquisition price of 2.2 billion, uh, development spend well exceeding that, a number of operational issues that are quite well known. But the point of it is their determination to continue to press on to obtain those uranium pounds at a price well in ex or at a cost well in excess of the current market price, it simply underscores their determination. So, and if you needed further evidence of why Namibia in particular will be the powerhouse of nuclear power certainty going forward, um, you can see the Chinese acquisition of the Rossing uranium mine, which should complete by mid-year 2019. So Rossing, very long in the tooth. It's got um, a current mine plan and mining license out to, or, or mine plan out to 2025. So what CNNC will need to do in the lead up to that is decide by probably about 2021, are they going to do a massive cutback to expose a new uh, depth to the ore body that enables them to keep mining beyond uh, 2025? So it is a, it's already uh, more than 350 metres deep and it's uh, more than three kilometres in one dimension and a couple of kilometres in the other. So it is an enormous mine that requires an unfathomable amount of pre-stripping to get into the next, uh, make available the next part of the ore body beyond 2025. Plus you've got a 45 year old plant that'll be 50 years old by then that needs very significant refurbishing that hasn't had the uranium price to justify uh, certainly over the last 10 years. So CNNC have got an interesting question. Do they continue to double down on rossing or do they say, you know what, those pounds aren't going anywhere we can do that pre-strip in 2021 or we could do the pre-strip in 2041. It doesn't really matter, but we know we've got the pounds. Perhaps we're better off investing that fund in a new uranium development. And uh, they do have a 25% interest in Langer Heinrich. So um, via a first right of refusal, they've got some significant influence there. But if they want to develop something else in Namibia, they've, uh, they've only got Tango, and um, the forces asset at Narasa to choose from. And the deployment of a 
rossing style workforce um, following closure of that mine would be far more neatly deployed onto a tango which is in many respects a similar mining operation than to Narasa, which is uh, quite different yeah and i want to that brings me into my next uh, discussion point was how do you feel about chinese ownership i mean we've we've seen the chinese take stakes and things like fission in canada we've seen them step into things like acap in botswana We've seen them step into Paladin. Uh, would would you entertain a Chinese partner? And what is your opinion on dealing with the Chinese? Because so far, uh, if at Greenland Minerals, I think is another one, if I recall, I haven't looked at recently. But what's your take on these these Chinese groups? Uh, do you do you think that there's one good Chinese group over there that's worth working with, or do you really see the bulk of these as counterproductive for a listed equity like you know like like bannerman or, or, or a company that is listed in canada or australia what's your take on this i think i can be a bit more frank if i take bannerman out of the equation um i don't want to cross any lines there and um and there, there are no discussions currently on going with the chinese through my choice but it's better if we just leave that out but in terms of broader um, there's three significant chinese utilities CGN, CNNC, and SPI. Any one of those groups would make an excellent partner. And the Chinese, unfortunately, don't enjoy a particularly good reputation in Africa. And because of a lot of private mining adventures from Chinese groups, either with private funding or state funding, uh, they've largely earned a lot of that poor reputation through their own doing. But the very large state-owned enterprises or uh, state-sponsored utilities, they're very different. I'm sure there's still cultural and communication difficulties, but they are very earnest and they're very sincere about doing things the right way. And they're incredibly strategic and smart people. So they know that you can't go into a country like Namibia and not win the long game environmentally and socially. So the, the perception that they're ready to come in and sort of rape and pillage the resources, there's none of that thinking whatsoever when it comes to uranium, because what they're interested in is security of supply. Um, things like cost and what the additional cost of social programs and environmental programs might add to that security of supply is such a small secondary consideration for them. And they also are learning that they can't put their host nations, host governments under too much pressure either. So um, we're seeing a, a very much a new era of responsible Chinese mining. And because of the unique complexities and sensitivities of the uranium sector, uh, this, this example is very much leading the way. So in general, I think Chinese would be an excellent partner to have. Um, there's an entirely secondary consideration, which is how the best shareholder value is obtained through a partnership like that. And uh, as you can imagine, trying to engage in a dialogue at the bottom of the sector is not particularly clever. So that's why Bannerman is not engaged in any dialogue at the moment out of choice, uh, because now it's not the time to be talking. So let's talk about Bannerman. Uh, give us give us an overview. Uh, give us a kind of a snapshot of the company, the management team, capital structure, uh, insider ownership. And then I, I also want to know about how you guys are aligning with, with shareholders at current prices. 
And then the final piece of that is if you can go back and tell us about Clive and, and how the project and the company was kind of set up, uh, kind of walk us through the timeline. Sure. So we've already mentioned that the largest shareholder in Bannerman is Trebekah. Um, they're a institution out of Sydney uh, that has uh, a few billion under management, including specialist debt funds, specialist resources funds, and a specialist uranium equities fund. The next largest shareholder is Clive Jones. He was the original founder of the project and the company in that respect, uh, been a holder ever since, been on the board ever since, um, very, very capable geo, um, can get right down into the weeds scientifically on the geology, but also very astute commercial operator. So absolute pleasure to sit on a board with Clive. Um, the rest of the board and management are heavily aligned with shareholders. Um, I keep things pretty tight, very tight, most people would say, for a listed company. So our expenditure is very low. Um, the management team receive a substantial proportion of their remuneration in equity. In my case, it's 50%. And the board also receives 40% of its remuneration through equity. Um, and they're typically in the form of either performance shares that have got very specified hurdles, including comparative shareholder return hurdles or out of the money options. Um, both of those exist. So I think we can definitely make the case that we are heavily aligned for shareholders and the culture of the company driven by the board and my particular flavor of doing things is entirely focused on shareholder value as you'd expect having a, uh, a board member who's sitting there with 7% um, of the register. You know, that's, that's his primary interest. Uh, the rest of the registers quite institutional. So including Trebekah, we've got about 34% institutional money on our register. Uh, for a $50 million company, that is not very usual in Australia. And I put that down mainly to being able to position Bannerman as the sector leading valuation leverage to uranium price recovery. So even institutions who they're not really ready to put a lot of time into uranium, but they know they need to have something because they do know enough about the sector that when things change, they'll change quickly and by then it's too late. So they love holding Bannerman because it just gives exceptional leverage. And if they wake up one day and it is $45 a pound on the way to 80, at, at least they've got a corner of their portfolio held down by Bannerman's leverage. And in terms of the capital structure, it's a far cry from where Bannerman was during the last boom. Uh, we did hit an enterprise value peaking at $500 million back then. Uh, we're sitting at about 40 million Australian dollars as an enterprise value and a market cap that's circa 50 million Australian dollars. Uh, we're in a really strong position financially. We've got $7 million in the bank and no debt. And as I said, we keep our overheads very, very low. So what that means is that's enough runway for either A, us to proceed through a financial close on a financing to enable financing and construction of the project. B, us to be able to complete some sort of a corporate transaction without being under duress through lack of cash in the bank. Or C, if something goes wrong and, uh, and it takes a lot longer than we think, we've still got three years of runway without needing to raise money. And we could extend that runway by cutting things to the bone if we needed to. 
but we think that that's unlikely, so we haven't gone down that path. Uh, so what it means is that we're a stable capital structure. People coming into the company now uh, won't have to invest on the expectation that they're going to be diluted further or they need to hold some back to be able to participate at a discounted capital raising. And I think that tightness will help us as we start to see more interest coming into the sector. Um, the history of the company. We started in 2006 uh, when we started with the Tango project in Namibia. So that's the name you've heard exclusively on this podcast because that's the only project that we've ever had. We've been utterly focused on that. And that's done a couple of things. It has uh, obviously meant that we are deeply sector focused, deeply Namibia focused, but it also reflects just the absolute massive volume of work that we've done on what is a very, very large project. And um, so Tango is sitting at 270 million pounds of resources and 120 million pounds of mining reserve. Uh, we've done 360,000 metres of drilling. Uh, we've taken it through DFS. Uh, we've done optimization studies. We've built a pilot plant, a heap leach demonstration plant, which we've run for three years. So it is a very, very advanced project. In uranium terms, that's shovel ready. And that's about how long you need, even in a jurisdiction like Namibia. Uh, you need at least 10 years um, to get a large project from discovery through to um, being ready for production. Well, Brandon, I appreciate the information on, on what you shared there with us uh, and the overview of the company. So I wanna, wanna take a pop shot at you and, and you mentioned you mentioned, uh, you know, tightness with with the company, and and it, looking at most of the stuff there, I agree it is, and actually it's arguable that all of it is, uh, but but some would say that you you have a little bit of a loose share structure in terms of the shares outstanding, and I I want to talk to you briefly about that because I know we got a number of questions about it, so first I want to back up and look at the general share structure. Uh, style that kind of prevails with Australian listed equities. And that tends to be that in Australia, when you compare to say a place like the US uh, and Canada for these types of companies in the natural resource sector, you might see in the US and Canada that the share structures tend to be in the outstanding amounts in the millions. Whereas in Australia, you see some of these uh, comparative equities uh, with, with, you know, a billion, you know, up to two billion shares outstanding. So give us an overview on what the thought process is, why the difference between the exchanges and the companies listed in these jurisdictions. And then tell us, if anything, if there's any positive thing about keeping the share structure as is, or if a consolidation makes sense at this point in the cycle for Bannerman. So it's a great topic. And it's something that I love because I have a real personal interest in the intersection between psychology and fundamentals when it comes to investing. And I think it's an example where the, the psychology is very different in Australia versus Canada, for example. And I think it's that understanding that, or need for understanding that's driven a number of your questions that have come your way. So in Australia, investors don't like consolidations or reverse splits. And the reason they don't like it is there's always a certain number of people who don't pay much attention to their shareholdings and they wake up or they come back from a holiday or something like that. And let's say a company's done a five for one share split. They look at the share price. They say, oh my goodness, this thing's gone up. 
and they phone their broker and say sell their holding. And there's a, that's probably the real reason behind it. And then there's a number of psychological reasons to do with uh, investors feeling like it's a admission by the board that they will never get back to their original share prices, et cetera, et cetera. And so as a result of that, you tend to see companies only doing consolidations here when there's a regulatory requirement or something a bit unusual, such as um, someone coming into a vehicle and that call it an admission of, of shareholder value destruction. It doesn't matter because it was the previous board or the previous CEO who did it. And so everyone will blame them and not, not the new person coming in. And that's, that's how it goes here. And when people see 200, 300, 500 million shares, a billion shares, they just want to do the math. They just say, right, what's the share price times 1.1 billion shares? Okay, and it ends up being that. Okay, there's your market cap. How much cash? That's your enterprise value. And that's where it starts and finishes. Um, and one of the advantages for it that's certainly a positive for us is there's a perception of increased liquidity when you have more shares on issue. Now, it is only perception because in the same way that the math I did is something that take the psychology out and whether you've got 100 million shares at 50 cents or a billion shares at 4 cents, it's exactly the same. And the same can be said with liquidity. But there is a perception that if you're looking at a, a stock, even a, a micro cap stock that's doing daily volume in the millions of shares, it appears to have a lot more liquidity and it, it's more acceptable um, to many investors who have concerns. And let's face it, with the uranium bear market that we've had over the last several years, liquidity has been a huge issue. It was one of the first things that I needed to address when I came into the company. Um, so on TSX, my understanding is that it's really quite different. Um, talking to investors in Canada in particular, it's almost seen as negligent to allow a capital structure to get that big. And given the um, psychology on the TSX, that's probably right, but it's only right for TSX companies. So if you're a TSX investor who wants to come and invest in Australia, and you're wanting to apply the TSX psychology to the ASX, all you're gonna end up doing is leaving good opportunities on the table for the wrong reasons. And equally, if you're an ASX investor, who gets all shirty because your stock on the TSX has just done a big crunch and consolidated itself right down and you see the share price come off. Well, it's equally incumbent on you to understand the psychology and understand why management and a board would be under pressure to make that sort of decision. Well, you nailed it. I, I'll, I'll just make a few comments on that. So if you go back to 2005, it's, it's normal that in a, in a bull run, especially in natural resources, Companies, companies show up, they have maybe less shares outstanding, they expand their share counts, as any company would in a bull market. You're going to raise capital, you're going to have people coming at you with money, you're going to have to build projects, you're going to have to advance the projects, and if you're creating value, nobody seems to care or notice that you get diluted along the way. That's part of the, that's part of the whole cycle, and that's just part of the, the psychology of investing and, and how the structure works. And then we get into a bear market, and then everybody says, well, let's just consolidate our shares. And you saw a ton of consolidations specifically in Canada uh, and some U.S. companies. Um, and it just starts over again. But at the end of the day, the market cap's still the same. And 
liquidity is still the same. If you're looking at sentiment and you're looking at a bear market, it doesn't matter if you got 5 billion shares outstanding or, or 5 million shares outstanding. Uh, nobody's interested in your stock. And uh, so I, I think that at the same time, people need to understand that. And it's so often that you look at the shares outstanding, but you know when you look at a big company in the United States, other sectors, Fortune 500, Dow Jones companies, you see completely different. You see billions and billions of shares out, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. So I, I think it's key that people understand that a little bit. And that, that's what I would say about it, Brandon. And I think you, you kind of hit it as well. And Australia is, is certainly a, a different psychology. And I think you explained a, a good chunk of that. And it'll be interesting to see what, what kind of feedback we get on it. But I, I think at the end of the day, what matters is is being on the right side of the cycle, the share base, share structure expansion that occurs. And the big question is, can management deliver the value on the right side of the cycle, on the way up, and those capital raises and that share uh, roster expansion, does that, uh, is that part of the creating value that, that management is able to achieve? And, and some managements will be able to do that and achieve that value. And some managements will not achieve it. They'll destroy the value and dilute shareholders. Absolutely. And I think um, the, the other point, which is what everything comes down to at the end of the day, is a little bit of research goes a long way on share capital structures. So the first thing is do the math and be mathematically driven, not psychologically driven. And if you are worried about psychology, make sure you're operating in the right psychology in the right jurisdiction. So don't apply ASX psychology to the TSX and equally um, don't have, if you're a TSX investor coming down to ASX, um, don't be worried that uh, most investors will have a TSX psychology because of course it works the other way. But the other piece of research to do is just to go back over the last over the life of the company and see what they have done to their capital structure. Um, because companies who have perennially consolidated to cover up previous poor issues of shares, uh, that's an indicator of management. And conversely, companies who might have a lot of shares on issue, have a look at what asset they've got to show for it. So if I can use Bannerman as an example, on the one hand, yes, we do have over a billion shares on issue, um, 1.041 million shares. And to a TSX investor who hasn't just listened to this podcast, that would be horrifying, I'm sure. But you look at what we've got behind that. Um, we've got the largest undeveloped uranium project in the world that's got a feasibility study. We've spent 80 million US dollars just on drilling and engineering and building our pilot plant. Um, there's 360,000 metres of drilling to show for that uh, billion shares on issue. So there's a lot of value backing that capital structure and a lot of explanation as to where that money has been responsibly raised, responsibly deployed. And whilst it might not be showing in market capitalization right now, it is showing in terms of value of an asset to the cycle. And then the final point is a, a nice little history lesson for people who are concerned about um, how Bannerman got there. We did actually do a three for one share split uh, back in 2006. Uh, so if the company hadn't done the three for one share split, our register would be low 300 millions of shares instead of the billions of shares. But uh, in order to increase liquidity at the time, uh, given things were moving quite quickly in the up market, the board of the time decided to do that share split. Uh, so 
Um, if you need further evidence that that 1 billion shares on issue shouldn't be a red light to investing in Bannerman, I think if you go to that history, you'll be quite pleased to see that that's a predominant reason why our share structure is the way it is. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, th I think that, that there's there's clear evident efforts if you go back and look at all the reports uh, going back five, six, seven, eight years with Bannerman, you'll see that there's a pretty good effort uh, during the during the down cycle to to conserve and, and do a good job of, of share capital stewardship as, as best as possible. And certainly I can think of a number of companies who have done a absolute terrible job, uh, have acted like the, the bear market was a bull market for their own pocket. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I think that uh, it's evident if you go back and look at it. And, you know, another another example that comes up, Brandon, I just have to mention because it, it is really interesting. It's an interesting case. But if you go look at Virginia Energy Resources, they had a share count outstanding of 57 million shares in 2013. That's the same amount of shares that's outstanding today. And that whole time they've they've spent a, a bunch of money on court cases and Supreme Court and, and all this stuff. And uh, so really, really interesting case, uh, probably one of the best examples I've seen of absolute zero dilution uh, since 2013, which I think they, they've got the record uh, for this cycle anyway. So I, I want to go back, uh, move on to another subject. So looking at uh, Bannerman uh, last cycle, uh, you guys had, had a listing on the TSX, uh, if my information is correct back then. Um, you guys had a, also a listing on the ASX, obviously. How much success during the last cycle can be attributed to uh, being dual listed? And does that have an effect on the attractiveness of Bannerman and, and its projects? That's an interesting question. So we have let our TSX listing go. Uh, that was one of the early things that I did three years ago when I came into the role. And it was largely for reasons of streamlining the company and reducing our overhead cost. I, I was somewhat fanatical about streamlining and reducing cost at that stage and, and we weren't getting any value from our TSX listing at all and it's quite expensive to maintain a dual listing on TSX. Uh, what we've seen over the last few years in general is TSX resources, speculative resources, investment pools being decimated by crypto and marijuana. Um, the ASX just hasn't had the same regulatory opportunities to participate in marijuana stocks. There are a few down here now. Uh, and equally, the, the market has not been um, particularly mobile into crypto. So the ASX in general has been a far stronger equities market for speculative resources investing over the last several years. Um, and if, if any listeners are looking for evidence of that, just track how many ASX listed companies have bought resources projects out of TSX listed mining companies over the last couple of years, and it's quite telling. So there was really no incentive for us to maintain the TSX listing. And we were doing virtually no volume on TSX at that stage. Um, it might be a bit different now because we're certainly getting a lot more interest from North American investors in the Bannerman story and we're getting a, a growing awareness of uh, the importance of Africa and, the, and an understanding of how limited exposure is to Africa and how few equities can offer that. Um, but it all 
we've got the listing as you as you mentioned on the OTC so North American investors can get access to Bannerman either through ASX which is far easier today than it was during the last cycle um, or through the over-the-counter market. Um, as for how much of our success, well uh, during the last cycle TSX um, was a very different story. Both TSX and ASX were had deep liquidity for uranium and any commodity really um, and it was AIM that was the laggard in that sector in that time frame. So we, we did benefit from having the dual listing and we were able to raise uh, deeper, stickier money because of that. How it plays out in the next cycle will be really interesting because I think there's a better understanding of uranium on TSX um, than ASX. Uh, however, the question becomes how long does it take to shake off the hangover from marijuana and cryptocurrency? Right, and I think that there's a part to a, a strategy there. I think at certain at a certain point in the cycle, it makes sense to maximize your listings and and go go big. And really, the TS, TSX or the New York Stock Exchange uh, sub exchange there on the NYSE is is are, are key places to eventually get listed, is, especially if you have a raging bull market. Um, on on the OTC, I know there's probably some demand for some of the audience that would like to know if Bannerman will go and freshen up their listing to a QB status or a QX status on the OTC, because we've seen that with some other companies in the sector, uh, probably closest to you uh, in the same town, Deep Yellow uh, went from QB to QX. And I think that there's a little bit of a demand for North American investors, specifically in the US, uh, looking for that little more depth and a little bit better, higher status on the OTC. What's your thoughts on that? So it is something that we're considering. Um, so very open to feedback. Um, perhaps uh, your listeners can send you feedback and you can let me know what level of demand you think there'd be. It would be responding to demand that would drive us to do that. We've certainly no noticed with some interest how much additional support that seems to have given Deep Yellow. Um, I think there's a couple of distinguishing factors. John Borshov has got a far bigger profile in North America than what I have. And I haven't been focusing on North America. And it's, uh, I've probably only really started to get any level of profile in North America through a few podcasts and through a few comments on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, so uh, it would always require uh, Bannerman to be profiled in a, in a better way in North America, which we're doing anyway, but we'd need to put a bit more shoulder behind the wheel. And in a small company that's been very careful with its cash, it's always a allocation of resources question. So that that I would find really interesting and, and understanding is the is the demand a number of isolated retail investors who would just love it to be a bit easier and a bit more liquid, or is there institutional demand that uh, that justifies a far greater allocation of resources? Yeah, I think it's worth looking into, and I think the OTC QB QX. I, I don't think it's a terribly uh, a cost problem to to get on there. I think it's more more or less just a little bit of a paperwork headache. Um, yeah, correct. It's good value. It's more the the necessary investment in um, the profiling that that becomes an allocation of resources. I think the process itself is um, excellent value. Right. So. I, we kind of touched on this a little bit ago, but does the company have any desire uh, 
to expand beyond Entango at this point to possibly other projects in Namibia or other jurisdictions? What are your thoughts on that? It's something we're always looking at. The difficulty that we've had in uranium is the reverse of why having such a big leverage project is such an advantage going into a bull market. So in other words, whenever we've looked at uranium projects and we've either thought about issuing our own script to acquire or raising money to acquire and invest, we haven't been able to satisfy ourselves that it's worth the proportionate dilution in what is a fantastic asset, very well positioned for the next bull market to be buying inferior assets at a, at a difficult point in the cycle. But we always look, we continue looking and, um, uh, and we'd happily consider anything. Um, we, we, there are jurisdictions that we wouldn't go to and you've had a flavour for that in some of the ways that I've answered questions. Um, we think there's no point having a good uranium asset in a bad jurisdiction because it's theoretical, the, the ability to produce. Um, in terms of moving into other commodities, the interesting thing is the nuclear sector is very conservative and by and large the people who buy our product don't really know very much about mining and really don't know very much about the financing of mining and associated capital markets. So when they see a uranium project acquire or a uranium company acquire a cobalt project or a lithium project or a rare earth project or something like that, they don't understand the subtleties of how it might be that that cobalt project is a lifeline to allow that uranium company to survive the bear market and be standing in the next cycle, or that it might supply um, an opportunity to invest and transact and top up the coffers and so on. It's generally interpreted as, ah, oh, another one's given up. And so whenever we've looked at other assets and on the face of it, it makes a lot of sense for us to acquire another asset in Namibia because we've got very, very good social reputation, good reputation with government, capability on the ground, good understanding of the country, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, we keep coming back to that issue. What's it going to do for our credibility in the nuclear sector if it looks like we've, uh, we've lost our focus and we haven't found anything that's so attractive that it could justify risking tainting such a good asset as a tango with that lack of credibility. I agree. I don't think that, uh, you know, unless it's unless it's sitting in the bottom of a tailings facility or something like that, like vanadium, you can scoop out maybe a, an energy fuels type situation or mm-hmm. maybe, a, maybe a palleted situation. I don't think it makes sense to, it, it does, it impacts the thesis and it's, it's unless it was just the, the opportunity was so stupid uh, I, you know, I, there's no point in, in uh, convoluting the situation. And so I, I do like the the focus and it kind of, it also points to management and what their intentions are to some degree as well. Uh, there might be a couple exceptions to that, but generally that is the issue. Um, so Brandon, if a buyer came along for the project, will the company entertain bids or is there a real desire to become a producer? <laughs> um. I don't think you'd get any support from our shareholders based on where the the current uranium price and current share price sits. So it's it's really a theoretical question that, that probably doesn't offer any value to anyone for me to start speculating on. Um, what I would say though is 
the board and myself are absolutely focused on shareholder value and achieving the best shareholder value. Um, I'm not a mining engineer who's looking to notch up another mine build on my CV. Um, I will do whatever is the best or what the board believes is best for shareholder interests. And I think that puts me in a slightly different situation. Um, there's a number of leaders of uranium companies who they've been put in a really awkward situation by the last bear market. Um, many of those people were absolutely outstanding executives who came in uh, in a very buoyant market. And if they're stuck with their development companies, they've had to sit on their hands for like nine, 10 years. And it's an awful thing to do to somebody who um, is relying on building projects and running projects to keep their CV alive and fresh and uh, to build up their own personal standing and therefore you know, personal income capacity. Um, so for executives who are in that situation, I can understand why they're very impatient to get into production and to get into construction and get mining. Um, our impatience is predominantly through wanting to serve the community of Namibia. The sooner we can get our mine built, the sooner we can start to create some of those enormous social benefits and fiscal benefits that a big project like a tango can offer Namibia. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be the current structure building that mine. Um, if it means involving a much bigger partner and a much bigger balance sheet, the first consideration is, is that the best thing for shareholder value? Now, of course, we are moving towards operating the mine. Um, that is our primary focus until a better solution comes along. So that's why the technical work has been done exceptionally well. It will stand up to any level of third party due diligence and it has done in the past. Uh, we've operated a pilot plant. So for some to commission the expenditure on a pilot plant back in 2014, 2015, when things were really dire in the sector, for some that was a, an odd decision because why would you spend money like that when you could just be battening down the hatches and trying to survive? But the board and um, the management believed that it was an essential part of having this project ready to build. And it has been, it's been a very important part. So the project is shovel ready and there's a lot of expertise in Namibia that could be harnessed to, um, to build. We would need to build a team out, we'd need to finance it. Um, most likely that would be in some sort of an offtake agreement if we did it off our own balance sheet. And we are ready to build the project when it comes, comes uh, to our opportunity and our window to do that. But we're not gonna build it at all costs. Brandon, so as you know, so we've warmed up investors to Namibia and you know that people are gonna look at Namibia now uh, with probably a different light after hearing your opinion and and continuing to hear our opinion on the country. And so there's really kind of just a few options in the country. Uh, you kind of have just four listed players that are really on the stage. Uh, Bannerman, Forces, Paladin, and uh, Deep Yellow, which is probably not at the stage of a Forces or a Bannerman, and certainly not of a Paladin level yet as far as their status. Uh, what are your thoughts on the competition there? Well, Andrew, I've got a natural bias towards Paladin and Deep Yellow uh, for two reasons. One is they're on ASX, so I get a lot more of investor feedback and I think I'm better able to judge the investor perception of those companies and Forces, which is TSX. 
and also both of those companies are still quite active in Namibia. Um, Forces has really pulled back. Uh, it uh, has only a shell team there and it's it's made the decision to batten down the hatches during the um, bear period. So there was a time when I knew all the executives in Forces, but that's no longer the case. Uh, so in terms of Paladin, um, very good leverage and exposure. Uh, it's got the advantage of being the only ASX listed company that has the market capitalization and liquidity requirements to meet generalist institutional investors in ASX. Now that will change as we start to see a re-rating in the sector, but for now, many institutions, their only way on ASX of getting exposure to uranium is through Paladin, and I think that gives it a real advantage. Um, it's also something to watch as companies like Bannerman start to push through a hundred million Australian dollar market cap and start to get access to that market as well. And uh, DPLO, I, I respect the management team a lot. John Borshov's achieved a huge amount in the sector, um, absolutely tenacious when it comes to developing projects. Uh, he's got an interesting exploration project. Um, I think it's very intelligent that he is pursuing in the bear market the secondary mineralization that whilst it isn't massive, it, it is close to surface and it's relatively cheap to explore. Um, I suspect that he'd dearly like to have an Atango, but understands that the requirement to drill out, well, first of all, to find, but then to drill out an Atango style ore body on his ground would just be way too expensive for undertaking at this time in the um, in the bear market. So I think what he's doing is intelligent. Um, he's the senior figure in the uranium sector on ASX and um, got a good team around him as well. So I'd say very positive things about Paladin and Deep Yellow. But um, you know, all companies have their own risk profile and both of those companies have risks. I've worked very hard, as you'd see from my deck, to try and really prune down the risks at a tango so that the, the main predominant overriding risk with a tango is uranium price um, because we're permitted and we've done a DFS and our numbers are transparent and uh, fastidiously done technical work. All of those factors go to crafting and positioning Bannerman as a leverage play to the uranium price. Um, so there might be reasons why investors would prefer Paladin. There might be reasons why investors would prefer Deep Yellow. And one of the key reasons why investors might prefer Bannerman is because the non-uranium price risks are very limited. And if you're looking for leverage and if you're looking for the best possible option on the equities market you can get, then that combination of extreme leverage and low non-uranium price risk makes Bannerman a very unique proposition. So Nuclear Fuel Associates, uh, led by Mr. Garo, uh, why did Bannerman retain NFA and tell us the advantages of having Dustin on the team as a consultant? Uh, well, there's, there's many advantages and uh, I think you know them well, Andrew, but um, for the listeners, Dustin's deeply experienced in the sector, uh, more than 40 years of experience Many of the structural innovations in the sector over the last 30 years, Dustin's been involved in, including some of the trading innovations. Um, you can trace some of the key features of the current spot market back to the auction system that Dustin implemented. Um, and he's also got deep sector experience in Namibia. He was responsible for marketing Paladin's 
material from Langer Heinrich and also Kyla Kera uh, into the wider world. So having both that combination of deep Namibian experience, deep nuclear slash uranium marketing experience, and still a very active footprint in the sector that gives him lots of interesting perspectives on things, uh, makes it an absolute no-brainer. The, the challenge is that uh, there's only one Dustin and he's only got so many hours in the day. So we just feel privileged that uh, our project was good enough that we were able to attract him to join us. Excellent. So on that note, uh, let's talk about company offtake efforts. Uh, what's what's the status of that and, and when do you guys see that that uh, is that a continuing continuing effort or is there a ramp up that's coming or what's the uh, status on that because I know the offtake is going to be important for this project. Yeah look there's a continuing level of activity which is based around building credible relationships with the utilities and that's partly uh, through Dustin and partly through myself and um, probably the main focus of that is some of the work that I'm doing within the World Nuclear Association. Uh, it's it's a bit pointless trying to spin your wheels too much with the utilities at the moment. Um, they're not ready to start contracting and we're not ready to start constructing and building yet and we're very conscious that they're busy people who've got very difficult jobs to do and the last thing we really need is them feeling like they're doing another meeting at another conference to talk through something that we've made sure is firmly in their minds already. Far better if I can have a beer with them at one of the functions and we know each other as peers because we're sitting on a similar working group under the World Nuclear Association or something like that. Okay, I think that's a good a good piece and, and good information. So that kind of takes me on to another part. So on timeline, kind of take us through where the project is now and give us some detail on how you finance it Give us a flavor of the mine permit time in Namibia, which I know is quite quick. And what do you really see uh, as kind of an earliest time to kind of first cake in the can? Uh, so in terms of financing, uh, this is sometimes one of the friction points that people have when they look at Bannerman. Um, at the moment, as we've explained, we've got a very small market capitalization of uh, about 50 million Australian dollars. Um, now, I would argue that that's a function of where we're in, at in the bear market. We did have an enterprise value of more than $500 million during the last cycle, and we would see that gap obviously converge as we move into a bull market. Uh, but with that size market cap, it can be consternation for investors to see our uh, pre-production capex, which is $793 million. Um, now, the couple of things that I'd say to that, one is we are dealing with an enormous project. So looking at capital, as a proportionate um, capital expenditure per pound of production. So the capital intensity, we're middle of the road. Um, about $100 a investment upfront for every ongoing pound in a country like Namibia with a, with a consistent ore body that's gonna be long life. We think that that's pretty good value, very good value in fact. Um, but it's still a big number. So there would be three ways that we could um, conceivably finance this project. The first one would be a more traditional financing. And I do think this is the least likely, uh, but that would be more traditional financing where we've got a lot closer to the sort of uranium price we'd want. Our market capitalization has increased along the way. And we're looking at a banking syndicate to do say 60% of it and raising equity or mezzanine to do the other 40%. 
Um, now that's possible and we've always made sure that that door's open. Um, our environmental uh, permitting has been done to IFC requirements and all the equator principles have been observed. So we've we've got the, the full breadth of financing opportunities to develop this project in a conventional way. But I don't think it's as likely as the other two alternatives. Um, so the next one is some sort of a offtake in return for soft debt deal. And this is likely to provide an enhanced shareholder return over the first alternative. Um, so it, first of all, there is no deal at the moment. Um, this is my expectations of how the market would develop. So listeners and investors need to be very clear on that. But if you look at our project, we produce an average of 7.2 million pounds of uranium. Now, depending on which technology the nuclear reactor is, that's sufficient to service about 17 nuclear reactors, um, an enormous number. And that is the scale and significance of our project. But what that really means is that um, it's very attractive to a sovereign nation or a large utility who's looking to a tango to underwrite their future energy requirements through nuclear. Um, now, let's say that you did, for argument's sake, a 25% offtake deal. So that would be enough uranium to underwrite the construction of five nuclear reactors um, in return for soft debt. So five nuclear reactors built in China, you've got something like uh, $20 billion worth of capital um, construction associated with that. So we think it makes a bit of sense to flip us a soft loan for seven or $800 million um, that gets repaid out of profit so that we could build. Now, it could take many, many different shapes and sizes. Um, I guess I offer that math for your listeners just to understand that 793 is a big number compared to our current market capitalization but it's a very small number compared to the $80 billion of investment that would be required to construct 17 nuclear reactors that we could service over the long term. And I suppose the third alternative, um, which I've always got an eye on because of my background, is it, the project ends up getting built off a much bigger balance sheet as a result of M&A activity. Okay, good information and, and good ideas uh, coming out of there. Um, so let's talk a little bit about mine permit time, what your uh, thoughts are on that. You guys have obviously already applied, uh, got a quick decision, obviously, because of the market conditions and, and uh, congratulations to the to the ministry there for making a decision and, and th it was a good decision. Uh, but give us a time on the permit and then also give us the time that you would think, give us kind of a timeline starting today, assuming a higher uranium price and how many, how many years we need to get to kind of cake in a can. So in terms of permitting, we have our environmental and social permits all in place. And the form of tenure that we've got, which is really ideal for this situation, is what's called a retention license. So a retention license is a long-term license that's granted in five-year in intervals or increments. And it enables a company to maintain tenure without any expenditure obligations. Now, we're still spending money on the project, but it's nice to have that decision entirely up to us. Um, not driven by an obligation to government. The thing about a retention license is to be able to apply for it, uh, you need to demonstrate that, but for economic conditions, you could meet all of the requirements of a mining license. So we've been through that process with the ministry of getting them right up to speed, 
we delivered the 14 lever arch files uh, with that application and all of that sort of detail. And they worked their way through that before deciding to give us a retention license. Uh, there aren't uh, proxies to work through in Namibia that are relevant here. So it's a bit hard to know exactly what would happen on timing. Uh, but given all the factors that I've said about the type of impact that we can have in Namibia, I'd expect that the ministry would be quite motivated at the point in time when we want to flip from a retention license to a mining license. And essentially what that means is confirming that all of the other information is still correct and then demonstrating that the economic paradigm has changed such that we're now able to produce at a profitable level and that financing is, is viable in whatever form it might take. So there is still a mining license that would need to be required, but we perceive the gap between a retention license to a mining license being significantly shorter and a, a relatively small step compared to moving from an expiration license to a mining license. Um, and all of the other structural requirements um, have been dealt with. So we have a 5% local partner in Namibia uh, called the One Economy Foundation. Um, absolutely brilliant organisation that's doing just the most fabulous, incredible work in country that aligns really well with our own CSR ethos and what we believe in terms of bettering Namibia via the project. Um, and the significance of that 5% shareholding is that's one of the requirements for a mining licence in Namibia at the moment, according to the ministry policy. So we wouldn't be starting at the beginning of, oh, gee, you know, who do we choose and who do we trust and how do we get to know them and what sort of a deal can we do and who's going to handle the documentation and who's going to advise their lawyers because their lawyers have never done a complicated farming uh, loan carried interest agreement on a massive project before, yada, yada, yada. We've worn all of that exercise already so that that's a box that's ticked. So then moving back to timeframes, um, from the moment of financial close, we would have six months of detailed design, which obviously in some circumstances could be front-ended, but uh, we assume that the detailed design would only come in after finance is obtained. Uh, then two years of construction, and then six months of ramp up. So for such a big project, it's actually quite a condensed time frame, and that is because of the sheer simplicity of the tango. Um, it, its complexity is its size. It is absolutely enormous, as we've discussed. But once you get over that, it's actually very simple. There's just one highly homogeneous ore body. Some of our drilling intersections are consistent intersections of 250 plus metres. And it does start at surface. So it's got a low stripping ratio. The metallurgy is very, very simple. Upwards of 95 is in a single favourable mineral. We're getting 93% recovery that's been demonstrated over three years through our heat bleach demonstration program. Um, it's a similar type of mining that's been done right next door in Rossing and also being done in Husab. And unlike those projects, we don't need to blend. We just take the material, crush it, put it on the heat leach, and the resonance time on the heat leach is astonishingly short. It's less than a month. So it's an incredibly simple mine. It's just very, very big. And that's part of the reason why it's a relatively short construction period of only two years. And it also speaks to why Tango has such a degree of appeal to sovereigns and nuclear groups, uh, because yes, it is mining and it's a business that they might not necessarily be involved in. But as far as mining goes, it's right up there at the simple end of the spectrum. 
So give us just a quick flavor for the uh, the timing to flip from a retention license to a mining license, assuming that you front run all the uh, paperwork and all the applications and you have everything, you have your desk in order. Give us give us a time frame, eight months, six months. What do you what do you think? Give us a ballpark. I would think that it could be done in conjunction with financing and um, detailed design. So uh, let's say that you're spending three months getting your financing in place and then six months doing detailed design. I'd see nine months as an absolute outside. Um, there are examples where the ministry's made um, decisions like this in three months. Um, the last time we needed to extend a license, uh, we got that extended inside two months. So, I, you know, guess is three to nine months, somewhere in that order, but it shouldn't slow the project down. And obviously government will be heavily motivated to make sure it doesn't slow the project down. Right. I think it, I think it stands so much more uh, relevance, the timing, uh, especially in Namibia, very, very much more uh, swift and expedited uh, as compared to other jurisdictions. So let's, uh, let's talk, we already talked CapEx. So I want to just briefly talk on, on uh, all-in sustaining cost. Can you, can you give us a ballpark of, of all-in sustaining cost per pound uranium for the project? Yeah, sure. I can tell you with great precision, <laughs> um, given that we've had a DFS under our belt for several years and we've uh, done some optimization studies. Um, so the, the break-even point for the project at the moment, um, according to our 2015 DFS, is $52 a pound. Um, and the initial cash cost is sitting at $33 a pound. Now, we have done some optimization work, which has been announced to ASX. Uh, we did a processing optimization study where we were able to incorporate a number of the wins that we had through the demonstration plant work. Uh, we've done some other work since then, such as on nanofiltration. There's a number of other technologies that we are quietly working on in the background that uh, weren't proven when we did our DFS, um, so we're regarded as a bit too risky, but since are worth a second look and have proven themselves in other jurisdictions. Um, so our, what we said when we did the optimization study in 2017 is we'd identified $70 million of CapEx reductions and we were anticipating so far about a $3 per pound reduction in cash costs. The reason why we can't give precision on the cash costs is it would require us to undertake a new procurement exercise and get new asset numbers, et cetera, et cetera which we wouldn't want to do until the exercise is fully wrapped up and we are um, very much on our way to financing the project. So hence that level of guidance. So I'd, I'd like to see that 52 all-in number um, reduced to the high 40s. And uh, I think that that's globally competitive, particularly since this is a rock solid number. It's not a uh, number that's been prepared with all of the optimism associated with a PEA array scoping study or even a PFS. Um, this is a number that's had a huge amount of work done um, by people who expected to see themselves operating the mine and being accountable for producing mining results that reflected the DFS. So let's talk 2019. Uh, what can ins investors expect to hear from Bannerman in, in uh, 2019? So I think the the most attention will be given to the sector itself. Uh, much of the work has been done with Bannerman and Atango to 
reduce its risk profile, as I said, in terms of pruning all of the non-financial risks, all of the non-uranium price risks right back. Um, so that work's largely been done. We are still working on a DFS update, um, but we're doing that in our own time. Uh, two reasons for that. The first one is um, I'm very focused on return on investment. So if I was to highlight the nanofiltration study that we did, because we've got in-house expertise and because we had sunk investment in the heap leach demonstration plant that could produce the industrial quantities of solution for the test work, the external cost to us and our shareholders was only $120,000. Um, now, I'll, I'll assure you that that level of expenditure gets an enormous amount of attention inside Bannerman. We are very, very tight on costs. But $120,000 is still a very small number compared to the several millions of dollars of NPV accretion we would expect as a result of the, the positive results of that study. So that's the type of return on investment that we're chasing with the work that we're doing. Um, if you try and condense those timeframes, you end up spending a bit more time on external consultants and they become a bit more costly. And so far, we don't have a reason to condense that timeframe. The second reason why we are taking our time is when it comes to completing the DFS update, there's really only two things we need to do. The first one is some of the detailed engineering required to glue together the end, uh, all of these different pieces, so all of these improvements. Um, we're doing them in a modular way, so you need to get the engineers to then just make sure that an improvement here integrates with the rest of the plant, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the other thing to do is to procure. So you go out to procurement um, to get a new refreshed set of numbers on everything from mining to acid prices. There's little point doing that procurement exercise if there's a chance it could go stale. So I don't want to be doing it in 2019 because that's what I've told the broking community when we still might be a year away from financing, for example because in the intervening time, we're just going to have to do it all over again. And equally, you do get much better numbers out of your vendors when they see the mines about to be built. Um, one of the challenges that we had with our DFS that we did is um, in a post Fukushima environment, many of our vendors realised that the, the, the quotes that they were giving us for our DFS, they were essentially just negotiating against themselves. They were letting the engineering firms see what they were prepared to do something for. So we weren't getting as keen a pricing as you would if they see that you are three months away from financing and going into construction and it's all about to happen. So that's the rationale behind not offering any timing guidance on our DFS update, um, but investors can be assured that we are very focused on return on investment and following a pathway that produces the best result for the project and the company. Right, yeah, I don't think there's a rush uh, at this point to to get ahead of the game i think you need to wait for uh the uh, the cycle to really start going and and uh see that market cap starting to increase before you start stepping on the gas i think it makes a lot of sense um so so tell us uh why should investors be taking a stake in bannerman today what would you say to potential uh, investors who are listening to this so the feedback that we get from many investors is they understand that this is a unsustainable situation in uranium pricing at the moment. 
it will have to give at some point and there's enough tension in the sector that we could see a single event acting as a catalyst to move pricing quickly. What those investors are also seeing is they're seeing the way that Bannerman's been quite effectively positioned, offering exceptional leverage to a uranium price recovery, but also a number of other advantages uh, that position it well in terms of investors looking to capture the asymmetrical returns that you get at the very early stages of the bull market. They're things like um, a long track record in the sector and an established name, the leverage to price that I've mentioned, the strategic appeal in terms of having an asset will be highly sought after when we see a sector transgress into a consolidation round. It's a very advanced asset and as I said, we don't need to raise money. I've pruned off the non-financial risks. So Bannerman operates as closely as an equity stock can to a leveraged option on the uranium price. So when they see the position of Bannerman in that way, realising that it only takes a small spark to set this sector running, I think investors are understanding that they need to have at the very least a toe in the water with a stock like Bannerman to ensure that they don't miss out. We saw in January 2017, when the uranium price went from $20 to $26, Bannerman increased in weeks from $0.03 cents to $0.09. Cents. And it's that type of trajectory that it's very hard to get onto when the sector starts to move. So Bannerman's trading at the moment in the range of 4.5 to $0.05. Cents. And I really think that offers absolute, absolutely compelling value for an investor who's got the right risk appetite, prepared to be a bit patient, and wants to make sure that they're positioned so that they won't come back from a vacation and see that all of their uranium stocks on their uh, watch list have doubled or tripled and they've been left right out. How can investors reach out to the company for more information? Uh, so probably the best thing is to send it via email, which is info at bannermanresources.com.au. That means that if I'm traveling, which which is a large proportion of my time, um, it'll go through to someone else in the company who can handle that and look after that. Investors can also follow me on Twitter, uh, Brandon underscore Munro, although I should warn everyone that I'm, I'm not the most active on Twitter. Um, it can be a very, very time consuming exercise and I hope everyone understands that I've got a few other responsibilities that I need to look after as well. And also LinkedIn. Um, I maintain a profile on LinkedIn and from time to time I publish articles on LinkedIn as well. Uh, so that's a, another alternative and you can just look me up. Um, but again, I don't spend a lot of time on social media, so email tends to be the best way to reach out. Okay, and how about a website? www.bannermanresources.com.au Okay, well Brandon, we really appreciate you taking the extensive time with us today and uh, good luck. Thanks, Andrew. It's been an absolute pleasure to have such probing and interesting questions.